0: When we are working with people who are very sensitive to, are you trying to ruin my creative vision? Are you trying to change what I make? I try and very clearly explain, I know we're not market research, that's a different thing. And and don't worry, we won't try and change your vision. We love your vision. We just want to help you make a great version of it.
1: This is Aaron May.
2: I'm John Henry Forster. And this is Awkward. Silence. Silence.
1: Everybody and welcome back to Awkward Silences. Today we're here with Steve Bromley. He's the author of How to Be a Games User Researcher and fittingly an expert on games user research. Uh, Steve, we're so happy to have you here today.
0: Thank you for having me. I'm really excited to be here today.
1: We've got J.H. here too.
2: Yeah, Steve, we didn't tell you, but we're actually uh, going to gamify this episode. Aaron and I <laughs> came up with the scoring system and every All answer you give, a... Yeah, at, yeah. Actually,
0: uh-huh. yeah. no, I'm just messing around. I will wait for the high score. <laughs> <laughs>
1: I'm gonna shoot the moon. Um, <laughs> yeah, awesome. Well, Steve, thanks for being here. And I, you know, I think let's just start with the beginning on this one. Games user research. What is that, and how did you get into this field?
0: Yeah, so uh, games user research has been at least I've been a games user researcher for about ten years now. Um, as you can imagine, when people are making games, there's a whole bunch of design decisions that are made at every level, both those fundamental ones about what are the mechanics of the game or how does the game going to work to those detailed implementation details, like how do I design this level? What should the menu look like? What character abilities should exist? All of those design decisions are made by level designers, artists, producers, all these other disciplines, but can be supported by user research. By running uh, play tests and user research and usability sessions, we can help understand what are the the impact of these decisions on our users and help tweak them to matching the design intent of the game behind it. What's really nice about um, the field of games user research is playtesting is is very common in games development. It's a thing that's been part of how games have been made for a long time. Uh, And because of that, there is that history of recognizing that you are making design decisions and putting them in front of people. Um, As a user researcher, you can bring some structure to that and some UX best practice. And so it's a really nice environment for practicing UX and user research.
2: And, and just to clarify on my side, when you say games, uh, like all games, like board games, video games, like what, how do you define games, I guess would be uh, my first question.
0: Yeah, great point. Um, so my own experience with video games, both console games, VR games, uh, mobile games, that type of thing. And I think because of that tech background, that's where it's more common. But looking broader at playtesting, playtesting is very common in board games, although I think I haven't encountered a formal UX or user research process for board games yet. Perhaps that's a growth area for the future.
2: When we say playtesting, that, that is literally just like, hey, I have a version of this game. These are the rules that I think are the rules. Let's play a couple of rounds. And then you realize like, okay, some of these rules got to change. Is, is that basically what that
0: means? Yes. So in the development of games, that is very common, that idea of let's just put it in front of people and see what they like or see what they can do and can't do. Obviously, coming from a user research background, we recognize that that's very dangerous. There's a whole bunch of nuances about understanding if people like things, uh, what's difficult and challenging that you want to apply appropriate methods, appropriate caveats and appropriate understanding to. So it's nice that designers are, are doing this anyway. But you do as a user researcher have to bring in a degree of expertise and formalise that process beyond what teams are just going to do by themselves. But ultimately, playtesting is put some people in front of it and see what they can understand, see what they can do, see what lands for them
1: yeah and that's you know that's common in user research right where the idea of researching this thing isn't new it's bringing bringing that history into a more formalized mixed method kind of discipline you know for the modern context um and I'm, i'm thinking of the example you mentioned of just like play testing where you imagine i don't know like if anyone read calvin and hobbes but like calvin ball or like I know my kids will make up games all the time and there is that playtesting process of like can we actually play this game can people understand the rules um so yeah it's, it's uh makes a lot of sense that that act of you know understanding if this game is any good is something that has always happened with games whether they be board games or, or digital games or otherwise
0: yeah there's such a close link in games between the player experience and the success of the game mm-hmm. that it's just really important to play test things as you say uh, even people making up games at home recognize that that's a really valuable part of what you're doing.
2: Yeah. And when you're doing um, user research on games, is there an element that's almost, uh, I guess my mind goes to being similar to like physical products where, you know, if you're designing a shoe, at some point you have to say the shoe is done. We're going to manufacture, you know, thousands and thousands of these things and we're going to sell them. And if it turns out there's a problem with it, <laughs> we're kind of stuck. Is games kind of that sort of dynamic of like, okay, the game is done. We're going to ship it out now to a bunch of people. Um, Whereas, like, you know, I think in user research and most like technical products or, or, you know, web based apps, you can kind of iterate and be like, oh, we we messed that up. Let's just ship a change. Like, where does games kind of fall on that spectrum?
0: Yeah, uh, that is changing over time, but is very much part of how game user research used to be and to some extent still is. One of the challenges that you have as a game user researcher is that launch date is extremely important for the success of a game. Uh, Modern games these days, they're spending as much on their marketing budget as as they are on their on their actual development budget and so hitting that launch window is really important for their success because they've spent a whole bunch to make sure that everyone's going to buy it that christmas holiday
1: yeah it's like a blockbuster movie i mean I, mm. how much does a, a top marquee game earn in terms of like comparison to a top movie it's got to be ballpark same, same bar game, right? Yeah,
0: I don't have the specifics, but you do regularly see stats that say video games industry is as big as Hollywood or bigger than Hollywood. Mm-hmm. So it's just as important. And like with movies, yeah, that launch window is critical for the success of it. There are there are games that have come back from a, a disappointing launch and over a number of years iterated on it and uh, evolved to give that experience that they promised at the beginning. But that that's not regular. That's not mm-hmm. the standard way that many games work.
1: Right. So that's pretty different than what you hear, you know, in in lots of, you know, SAS or other forms of digital user research where it's all about iterative launches and just, you know, put it out there, A B tests, and we'll keep getting better. Very different.
0: Yeah. And it does introduce quite a few methodological challenges as well for us as user researchers. Because of that importance of the launch and the marketing spend, it means that secrecy is really important for mm-hmm for doing it and a lot of the methods that you would apply as a user researcher in other tech where we'll launch it we'll do some remote testing we'll do some unmoderated testing the industry just isn't comfortable with that it's not comfortable with people having copies of the game at home where it could potentially be leaked and, and then disrupt that that launch one thing that you see in game user research that you don't see a huge amount in other types of user research is huge multi-seat usability labs uh, as a consequence so you can mm. do quant studies but you're bringing 40 players into your environment where you can control what they see and what they're exposed mm-hmm. to and um, crucially what they can take away in a way that you couldn't do if um, if you were letting them play it at home yet still answer some of those quant questions that our, our teams would have.
1: And I, I'm thinking um, there are a lot of people who would probably like to be participants in that research. Is it mm-hmm. hard to recruit for games user research or...?
0: Um, No, it's really, (laughs) one of the positives as well is just how excited everyone is. Um, Mm -hmm. Not, well, definitely the staff who work there. A lot of people who work in games could potentially be earning more if they were working in other forms of tech, but they're there because they they love games and are really enthusiastic about, about designing and making games. And so the people working there are really enthusiastic. But you also see that reflected in the research participants. Whereas if you're working for a bank or an insurance company, bringing in a participant, it's, they're there for the money. It's not the most exciting meeting they've had that day, perhaps. In contrast, when you're testing a game from a studio that you love and it's unannounced, you've no idea what they're working on, that's probably the best thing that participant has done that, that, um, that month or that year. It's very okay. exciting for them, uh, which is obviously great for them but does create those risks of we've got to be very careful that they don't go and tell everyone about what they saw. <laughs> and also it has a significant influence on if you're trying to measure things like enjoyment or or some of those emotional things that you, teams might be interested in, in capturing. That's very difficult to separate the experience of the actual game itself from the experience of coming to the studio and having a great day playing games that you, you didn't, uh, isn't a typical day for you. Mm -hmm.
2: Mm -hmm. Uh, so when we talk about participants we're always are they the right participants and i'd imagine for games it seems like maybe a a big kind of dichotomy that you need to make sure you're covering your bases on are like you have gamers people who like (laughs) really love games and know and know lots about them but then i also imagine you want people who are less into gaming to be open to some of these things right like i think when you see some of the most successful games it's because they've had wide adoption from like you know the population at large it became like a phenomenon so like how do you make sure that you're getting people who can like Give you both ends in, in the sense of okay like as an experienced gamer we're, we're familiar with some of these patterns and this game's really interesting versus like i'm a novice and i was able to like approach this and uh, are, are people trying to balance both of those things or does it depend on the game
0: no it's a really good point and yes i think it is very important to get both those experiences um obviously what we're most interested in recruiting based on are they going to purchase the game so you can do a lot of segmentation based on mm-hmm. What other games have they bought before and what have they played uh, before? And how far have they gotten those games? Which is a good indication of are they likely to be the type of person who plays this game. And um, though, as you say, that doesn't mean that we should exclude people from who are new to the genre or would potentially buy buy that game but haven't played similar games before. Mm-hmm. One of mm-hmm. the because games are exciting and people want to be involved. You do get quite a few people who are participants misrepresenting their experience. I guess you get that in any type of user research, who just want to be there to take part of it, but aren't necessarily the type of player who would really buy this for real. And so we do have to be very careful with screening based on the thing to play before, their purchase behaviour, to make sure that this is a realistic player. And we are getting both the experienced player's behaviour, but also when relevant for our research objectives, the the experience of new players who this is the first time they played a game in this genre for example
2: gotcha the the other quick thing that comes to mind with participants for games research is that you know kids like games so i'd imagine that you're also often trying to talk to people who are under 18 and i'm curious how you navigate that aspect of it
0: yeah and i know you've talked about in previous um podcasts that is challenging so we always find it easier to work with the parents and we'll recruit the parent to at least physically be there while while the child is play testing. Um, that helps to some extent because obviously the, the safeguarding issues are lessened because their, their parent is there, uh, but also does create um, a challenging environment for for you as a moderator to to make sure that the parent doesn't disrupt the play artificially and that they're entertained and not bored or, or don't fall asleep just because they have to watch their, their kid playing a game. Kids in general, as I know you know, are challenging playtest participants because of that high degree of honesty. They they <laughs> um, will tell you if they don't like it. They will refuse to play anymore if that's their realistic behavior. And that's probably valid feedback. But also because yeah, their behavior can be quite unpredictable, as you can imagine.
1: Yeah, that honesty does seem like an asset,
0: though. <laughs> yes, yeah. I've had... Um, kids who have come in to play games and they've been super excited because the idea of coming in to play games is great so uh, they're super excited for the first 10 minutes and then they realize oh this isn't this isn't the game I play at home. I like Mario Kart. I'd much rather be playing Mario Kart. Why do I have to play this game I've never heard of and then uh, sulking or <laughs> wanting to leave uh, all these things. again, really valid feedback but uh, difficult to moderate.
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah. It seems telling, though, that maybe something needs to change in that game. Yeah. Mm-hmm. All right. A quick, awkward interruption here. It's fun to talk about user research, but you know what's really fun? is doing user research, and we want to help you with that.
1: We want to help you so much that we have created a special place. It's called userinterviews.com slash awkward for you to get your first three participants free.
2: We all know we should be talking to users more, so we went ahead and... Removed as many barriers as possible. It's going to be easy. It's going to be quick. You're going to love it. So get over there and check it out.
1: And then when you're done with that, go on over to your favorite podcasting app and leave us a review, please. So you're specialized in games user research. So how is it different than other kinds of user research? Because as we talk about this, I'm thinking about, you know, we talked about the kind of movie analogy and, you know, games are entertainment, right? But Mm -hmm. they're also interactive in a way that um, movies are, are perhaps not. Um, and so, yeah, what, what does it look like to do games user research? What are the similarities and difference between, say, you know, a consumer digital product, a business to business digital product, some of the other sectors where you see a lot of user research happening?
0: Mm. One of the first challenges that I think games user researchers encounter when they come from other industries is uh, the mindset that people we're working with, uh, because uh, people who work in games often do it for a passion project, like with, with movies. Uh, they have the, the mindset that games are creativity and that they're an artwork. And how can artwork be compatible with this idea of user research or usability testing? Because you wouldn't usability test the Mona Lisa if, if you were <laughs> painting that. Um, that is obviously a challenge for us as user researchers and does have quite a big impact on how we work. So. It's simple enough for usability testing just for us to change how we frame the value of usability testing. Rather than saying we're going to change your creative vision or improve your creative vision, we can describe usability testing as we understand you have a creative uh, vision, but some of that's being lost in the interpretation between what you are creating and how the player is experiencing it. Mm-hmm. And so we're trying to remove those barriers between what you think you're putting into the world and actually what is a player experiencing from it. And through that way, you can make the case for usability testing. Some of the other types of user research, though, that you would find in other types of tech, such as understanding user needs or that discovery work uh, can be more challenging to make the case for because it does seem like it conflicts with the idea of creativity and and putting artwork into the world. I do find, though, that that differs based on the type of games. So an emerging genre that has been bigger over the last five or ten years is mobile games and free-to-play games and often those teams come from a background of working in software development and have been exposed Mm. to these ideas from other other industry and so we'll have a different mindset to someone who is working uh, on a small indie game that is their creative vision that they're putting into the world
2: that makes a lot of sense for even when you get people to buy in though and you're like let's do some of this play testing and other stuff how do you know? like which issues are real issues? Because I guess the thing that comes to mind for me is kind of like that concept of flow state where if something is too easy, people get bored and give up. If something's too challenging, people get frustrated and give up. And so some of these things in the games, right? Like as you're going through and you're discovering what's possible or or how to beat some challenge or level, you kind of want it in that middle zone, right? Like it can't be too easy, but it can't be too hard. So if somebody does get stuck, how do you unpack of like, are you motivated to go figure it out? Are you going to give up? Or like, how, how do you work through that dynamic?
0: Yeah, that's a great point. Um, so one of the things that I've learned in my own career about what's important for having those discussions is encouraging our design teams to articulate their design decisions without that pushing. Often people can just say, I, I want my game to be fun or I want it to be the right difficulty. I don't want it to be too easy or too hard. Mm-hmm. And so getting them to articulate what is too easy and what is too hard turns out into something that you can measure and then you can design a study around how many times they fail on a level, how um what are the challenges in the game, are things that you can then measure. Although, as you also said, you can measure that based on a player's experience. You can ask players to, uh, to rate the ease or difficulty of each level or each encounter. Using things like Likert scales, You can you can capture that and then see, by correlating that to what the design vision was, is this the thing you're trying to make?
1: And is this something that designers usually, do they know the answers to these things? Like on a scale of one to 10, I want it to be easier, hmm. hard, or why they might want that? or
0: I, I've found traditionally, no, it's not a thing that designers have a thought about. I, I you get the, the view that I'll know it when I see it. So I, I'll just put it into the world and then I'll tell based on the player reactions uh, how it how it does. I And I find, at least with the relationship to some of the game teams I've worked with, that's a starting point that you have to build from. If the teams aren't familiar with articulating difficulty or their design decisions or the intent behind it, um, by going through some early play tests and starting to expose them to this, is the type of data you get from back from play tests, and this is the value of defining uh, what you're expecting from players beforehand, you can build that relationship over time, which I think is important. Does, does
2: some of that too come for like from the vision of the game? You mentioned kind of like some people are more indie, kind of very artistic makers versus other people probably going for mass market appeal, like the the phone games and things like that. Like, is some of it that you can kind of unpack it from there? Like, hey, like what kind of game do you want this to be? Like, you want everybody playing it, or do you want the people who you know are playing it to be like you know obsessed with it and, and devote followers? Or um, I'm not sure if there's anything to that kind of framing.
0: Yeah, I think that's a really nice idea, and I think teams do do that kind of work at the beginning to say what are the core pillars of this experience? What are we trying to create here and what do we want it to be like? And so as a researcher, that's a thing that you can take and and adapt to try and formalise it and make it measurable. Although some of these things like, is the game fun? Is the game the right (laughs) difficulty? Although we can try and measure it and it's a a very common research objective, there's always a a grey area between we've measured something, but have we really measured that? the core part of the experience that is relevant to the game design is a continual challenge, I think, for us.
1: Yeah. And I imagine you, you know, sort of specializing in this and working with lots of different clients, you know, have that experience to bring to every situation. Have you been able to, you know, are there certain benchmarks or heuristics that, um, that apply from, you know, sort of game to game that can make it a little bit easier hmm. to think through what is, enough friction or not enough or you know how to quantify fun and things like that
0: (laughs) yeah I, i think that definitely does exist i know big studios uh big publishers like microsoft for example they have all these benchmarks from other games that they've tested before so you can compare the scores or the difficulty to other games to try and draw a conclusion that can be quite challenging because not only are they what the experience is trying to be different but also the the scores have got to be radically different at different development stages so even the same game later in development is a lot more complete and a lot more representative than it is earlier on and so it's hard to benchmark a game against itself or a game against other other things right. but that that ethos and it's something the industry is trying to do definitely exists. In in during this testing
2: phase is, is there an also an element of trying to figure out like if players can find like exploits or, or ways to you know take advantage of the game, I feel like that's something you typically see in the gaming world—the people who find glitches or you know different rules or incentives that can be you know manipulated in some way that was unintended. Like, are are the developers trying to stomp that stuff out at this stage as well, or is that a, a different kind of approach altogether?
0: I think that's definitely a thing that designers are interested in. Often from the type of playtests that I personally run, uh, which are small scale qualitative studies or small quant studies of 10 to 50 users, you might not see a huge amount of that behavior. It's not until you hit the 1,000 or the millions of people playing that that really becomes clear of what, a, because they, they've crowdsourced that knowledge, what are those exploits or all those things that ruin the game by making you super wealthy and be able to buy everything else in the game, for example. Um, they often would pick that up very late in development when they run a mass beta test, which is part of the process where. They, they will do a soft launch of some games and have a 1,000 people play it or 10,000 people play it, it mainly to highlight bugs, but also it does reveal these exploits if you're measuring the right type of things. But usually that's a bit further down the line than when our playtest um, and game user research knowledge is applied on the design of the core mechanics and that side of it.
1: So what are some of the, the phases for user research in a gaming context? Is it the same that you would expect in other applications or is it a little bit different? For example, mm. you know, what does evaluative research look like or discovery research or is there a different lingo?
0: Yeah, the lingo isn't the same. Games has its own lingo that uses for development, I think, where first they, they decide to prototype something and their prototypes are trying to find that core part of the fun of the game. What is... The fun bit, even in just five minutes, that if you replicated this core loop again and again, you could build a fun game around. And that's one of the most challenging times I find for a user researcher because it is the least formalized. Teams aren't that clear on what they're looking for because what you're trying to do is just work, find a fun thing to do. And it's often more of a toy at that point to see this is a fun thing. Um, And that is where that informal playtesting becomes very Uh, part of of how they they currently work, getting peer feedback, and just trying to find out what is the core loop of this game.
1: So wait, so in in research that I'm more used to, right, Mm -hmm. with discovery, you're trying to understand, like, what is the problem we're trying Mm -hmm. to solve, right? With the game, it seems like, well, the problem is I want something fun to do. (laughs) Um, Yeah. yeah. And so when you're talking about the prototype stage, you know, again, in other kinds of research, we're looking at Okay, have we kind of sort of started to solve this problem, but here we're looking for where is what I'm hearing you say, where is there, where is the fun centered and what we've shown someone and where can we like dig into and try to, you know, create more of that fun stuff. But how did you get to that prototype in the first place? Is it just that, you know, the creative genius with the idea or... Um, how do you get to that point of having that prototype?
0: Yeah, that's a really good point. And exactly as you've described, a lot of that discovery, understanding user needs, um, understanding of problems and using that to identify opportunities, I haven't found that applied to games in the same way because the user need is ultimately the person wants to be entertained, they want to have a fun time. There probably is some contextual user needs about what's the environment and what they're playing in, for example. But a lot of that fundamental research isn't isn't relevant in this case. I find currently the games industry does rely a lot on that idea of a creative genius. Someone's coming up with ideas and they're trying a number of different things and seeing what lands and being inspired by seeing players play it, Uh, Mm -hmm. but ultimately just coming up with ideas. I wonder if in the future there's a lot more potential for user research to go further back into that space. We talked earlier about one of the challenges for game user researchers is games are an artistic medium, and how do you uh, how do you apply that kind of discovery research on an artistic medium? But I don't think it's a hopeless case. I think with further work and further thought, you could think about how do I apply discovery research to video games. Yeah. Large, yeah. largely though, a lot of the uh, user research that does exist for um, for video games is in that second diamond of the double diamond it's we know what we're trying to make let's explore a whole bunch bunch of different ways to make it and let's iterate on those ways to come to the the correct solution
2: on on that front half is that an area where like the entertainment industry like tv and movies is is maybe a little bit ahead or there's like things to learn from because i feel like you kind of see both things happening there where like you know some movie will come out and it's purely just someone's you know, passion project, and it's incredible. And you're like, I would have never thought that this story would be interesting, but <laughs> this person made it, and it's great. But I think you also start to see studios and companies do stuff around this, like, hey, there haven't been a lot of stories about this type of profession or or this type of background. Like, we should figure out how to bring content to life in that area because you know, there's there's gaps in the in the market. Like, is is mm-hmm. there stuff in that indes- in that area that like the games research side could learn from? Or I, I don't know that world well, so I'm guessing a ton here, but just curious to get your thoughts.
0: Yeah, I think a lot of that probably does happen, that kind of market research of working out what are some popular genres, what are some popular themes for games, and and which genres and themes are underserved. And do we think if we made a game of this type, it would be successful? I think that definitely does exist. I don't know your perspective as a researcher, but I often try and distinguish what we do as user researchers from that type of inspirational market research particularly when we are working with people who are very sensitive to, are you trying to ruin my creative vision? Are you trying to change what I make? I try and very clearly explain, I oh, know we're not market research. That's a different thing. And, and don't worry, we won't try and change your vision. We love your vision. We just want to help you make a great version of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I think you're right. I,
2: I think I inadvertently described market research as I was working through that point, but uh, that, that makes sense.
0: Uh,
1: let's talk about, you know, some applications of, of user research for games you got any cool stories, some interesting research that you've done that's, I always, you know, research I think can be so like theoretical and academic and mm. the, when we did the research, we learned this and then build a better product is kind of where the magic is. So yeah, any, any fun stories of games user research applied?
0: Yes, yeah, Some of the work that I've uh, worked on in the past and found particularly interesting was around virtual reality so uh, before I I did this uh, by myself, I, I was with the team at PlayStation. I was a user researcher in PlayStation's internal team, and about five years ago, they were working on their first virtual reality headset. The at the time there were no commercially available virtual reality headsets, so, so it's before Oculus Rift and it's before the the Valve one, and uh, that meant it was there's a huge amount of really interesting research challenges that were just completely unexplored. We were working, for example, very closely with game teams about how do you, how do people navigate a game world in virtual reality, and how do you tell them to pick things up, and what's a, how do you describe these fundamental interactions in a way that's understandable and usable? And because it was an entirely untapped ground, that's such a broad research question that's really exciting. You do a whole bunch of prototyping, looking at different ways of moving, looking at different ways of interacting with things. This hadn't been done before it also led to, uh, yeah, pulling on old methods and, and again, answering, describing new methods that hadn't been used before either, for example. So one of the big deals around virtual reality about five years ago was fears around motion sickness. And I know big studios like Ubisoft and Activision and other ones who are looking at virtual reality were doing quite a lot of work to work out how do we how do we avoid triggering motion sickness? How do we measure uh, motion mm-hmm. sickness? All these types of questions. And um, how I looked at it myself was, and with the team I was working with, we were aware that work had been done by the army back in, in the 1990s about training helicopter pilots in, in virtuality environments. And so we had to go back to that type of research, look at their methods, pull them out, try and adapt them and try and apply how were the army doing it in the 90s to a commercial setting, again, just new methods that hadn't been used before, new interact designing new interactions, a whole bunch of things that were, uh, as a researcher, uh, are really interesting because no one has done this work before. And
2: when when you're doing that, is there a way to like prototype those interactions or explore them in like cheaper ways, or is it some of it like you have to build some of the technology to see? You know, if people can pick things up in in VR using this type of pattern or like, uh, what what are some of those ways that you actually get into that learning?
0: Yeah, so a lot of it does require software development, at least how we approach it was with software development. But the software development doesn't have to be that onerous. There's a lot of game engines that make actually creating ugly versions of how it would work, but testable versions, not particularly difficult. So you can work very closely with game teams. And we did work very closely with game teams. To prototype a wide range of different interaction methods and then put them in front of players. Um, So, yeah, it's at least from a software side, it's not impossible. Hardware, obviously, a a lot more expensive and a lot more difficult. But, um, yeah, a lot of the, the challenges we were looking at is in the actual software implementation of these things.
1: Yeah, it feels like, you know, researchers talk about mixed methods all the time and kind of having this toolkit of methods you can, you know, use for different jobs you're trying to do with your research. And this idea of kind of going into the military archives to find, you know, method inspiration is so interesting. Like, how would you even think to think of that? And, um, yeah, just like sort of expanding your method arsenal to include arsenal of military term, I guess, (laughs) um, you know, to find these adjacent methods that wouldn't come to mind, obviously, but in fact are so appropriate for this new Kind of thing you're trying to learn. How do you go about finding that stuff?
0: Yeah, I, I think as with any researcher, we probably started with Google, um, mm-hmm. typing it into yep. Google and seeing what exists. I also think, uh, I mean, perhaps we're lucky with virtual reality that it is an area that has had academic interest, and so there's a lot of theses pub- that people have published. And so, if you are looking for journals or academic publications. Both those direct publications, but also their references, are a trail that you can follow to see what work has been done in this space before, and then build from that to do your own work in the future. But yeah, I I imagine a lot of it is luck based on what you stumble upon and what you've missed.
2: When, when on the methodology side, when you were talking about the multi-seat playtesting, I realized that I don't actually know that I fully know what that means. Is it purely just that there are multiple people playing the game? You know, simultaneously, are they playing the game together? Or does that vary? Like, what what does that actually look like when when you get people together to do that?
0: Yeah, good question. Um, so, as you can imagine, a lot of the type of questions we want to answer are quant questions. We want to measure something, or we want to get some ratings, things that you would do through a survey or a quant method normally. But because of the secrecy, that's not available to us uh, in in games user research sometimes. So, uh, a, a setup that they have in a lot of big Uh, publishers like PlayStation, like Microsoft, like Mm. Ubisoft and Activision, is they will have a big user research lab which has 40 or 50 gaming pods which are set up with a TV, a a console, uh, probably a a computer where you can fill out a survey, and then they just bring people in to play the game. Uh, Mm. That can be short sections of the game if you're uh, testing the usability of a very specific interaction or very specific thing, or for those longer play sessions you might have people come in all week so that you can track how does that experience change over time and can the players complete the later levels which obviously they've had to see the earlier levels to have learned the things to, to be able to do and so you can be sat with play like 40 players for a week or or more looking at those type of things through surveys um, when they stick up their hand and say they're stuck going and doing some direct observation but, I guess you as an individual researcher, you can't watch 40 people intently. So you have to rely on them flagging when there are usability problems or or issues with the game.
1: What about matching different methods to different devices or modalities? You're doing a game that's meant for mobile versus something played on TV or computer or most games now, multi-platform. I know there are a lot of like, you know, there's a robust mobile game Mm. um, environment, but how you would think about you know, testing for those different things?
0: Yeah, that's a really good uh, point. Um, And again, I I think as researchers, there's definitely more we can be doing in this space. So a a one-to-one usability lab, as in any type of user research environment, is a very traditional method that you might be applying in, in games user research. And you can bring people in and get them to play a mobile phone game, for example, or a console game. And these rooms are often set up to look like a a typical living room. So it's trying to create that console or PC gaming experience. One of the downsides, I think, is that in real life, especially with mobile games, people's context isn't that quiet usability lab. It isn't even their living room. People play mobile games on the train when being distracted by other things or in an environment with a higher level of background noise. And I don't know if we're great at, at recreating that Obviously, you can do things like letting players go into the wild, doing diary studies, and um, doing something remote and unmoderated so that they can go and play in a more realistic environments. But sometimes those non-disclosure agreements and secrecy points stop you from doing that. But yeah, there's definitely some caveats that we need to be thinking more about, about how does the context and the, the actual device they're using to play it on affect their experience.
1: How has, I wonder, given the challenges with remote testing, you know, with the secrecy and the NDAs mm. and all that, with COVID, right, that's uh, <laughs> been, been something folks have relied on quite a bit is remote testing. Is that something the gaming industry was able to adapt to? or
0: it, It's been a massive challenge. Uh, I think a lot more than in typical technology because of the secrecy. Mm. I know some people have tried to look at, uh, opening their labs in a COVID safe way, so very isolated pods and making sure they don't come in contact with anyone else during their play session. Uh, There's a good blog post by the user research agency called Player Research where they were adapting their lab to, to be more COVID secure. But at a certain point during the pandemic, even that hasn't been possible. Uh, just leaving your house has not been recommended, so right. coming to any sort of lab isn't isn't suitable.
1: So what happened? Did the yeah. games ship without research? <laughs> yes. Or um, imagine, have has game usage ticked up with the pandemic, or what's that?
0: Yeah, been I like? I think game usage has ticked up, and uh-huh. I've spoken to a different a number of researchers about different methods that they try to overcome this remote challenge. Um, there is some technology out there that allows you to stream a game. So it's feasible that even if the game is on, on a server in somewhere in a game environment, uh, in the game studio, you can play it at home. So that solves some of the technical issues. But still, those secrecy and those NDA issues means that it's just not possible for for uh, some games or for some setups to do that. Other studios I've talked to have just relied a lot more heavily on expert reviews or internal play tests, which are are nowhere near as good even even the best user researcher they're not going to find half the issues that you would in front of a a real player and so I, i think it has suffered over the pandemic our ability to do this type of user research
2: Aaron, when you asked the original question about, you know, different types of devices and this and that, I don't know why my mind just went to like the Nintendo Wii and just thinking about oh, some yeah. user research researching that and just watching people throw the remote into this oh, TV yeah. screen, We're like we should put a leash on these things.
0: Yeah. I think all those safety warnings they have at the beginning are probably a, a reaction to that.
2: Yeah. Nintendo wow. must get up to some cool stuff. They're always messing with new uh, new interaction uh, options and stuff like that. Yeah.
1: Bowling on the Wii is so fun.
2: Yes. It was very fun when they came out. Yeah. Very fun.
1: Uh, Steve, how has the field changed? You've been doing this for a minute and games have certainly changed over the years or have they? Maybe they've always... Yeah. The the core tenets of what makes a good game maybe haven't changed as much, but the games themselves have. But where do you see this field going?
0: I think there have been big differences in in what's been the average game created over the last decade. Mm -hmm. So that push towards free to play, that idea of the game itself is free, but you can either pay for upgrades or pay not to have to wait for things has been extremely popular. It's a a way that game designers have learned how to monetize their games beyond just getting 40 quid from someone when you sell the game in a a store to perhaps over a year or two, we can make a hundred pounds from that same person. And because of that, uh, the type of research objectives have changed significantly as well. Not just, is this a fun game, but also uh, how is retention? Are people gonna still be playing this in six months or a year? That has had some impact on the type of, obviously, research objectives we get brought, but also how we want to tackle those research questions. And it can be very difficult to, to measure retention or to work out, is this game going to stick compared to the methods that we were using a decade ago where we're just putting someone in front of it for an hour and from that we'll learn a whole bunch about their behavior and their opinions and whether this is a game is working or not. I can see that changing further. So one of the impacts of that has been... Uh, the maturity of of data science in games and the Mm -hmm. idea of let's uh, do some analytics and let's do some machine learning to predict the people's future behavior that's personally not my background or my expertise but i can see both uh, working a lot closer with people with that background and expertise and doing joint work together becoming much more important a significant change i can see coming in the future of the games as well is uh Xbox, and I, I don't know if PlayStation have announced something similar, but they're moving towards the idea of a game pass, which is very similar to the idea of, of what Netflix does. So rather mm-hmm. than buying a specific game, you pay uh, $10, $10 a month and you have access to a library of games that they have uh, picked. Again, mm-hmm. that's going to have an impact on how those studios who make the games get paid. Presumably, they're going to be paid by how long people stick around playing their game versus someone else's game. And from that, that's going to have an impact on the actual game design and what are they making. They're going to start making games that aim to be played for a long period of time rather than creating a short uh, experience in a way that they might have previously been able to. And again... Yeah, maybe
1: mm-hmm. maybe dialing up that friction yeah. <laughs> you know, to its upper limit.
0: Yeah, exactly. All
1: people around.
0: All yeah. those things about balancing, working out. Um, is this the right kind of difficulty? Are we creating an experience that players will will stay in that flow state becomes really important in a way that perhaps it hasn't been in the past.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: It feels like some of the stuff you just mentioned, you know, the monetization where you can buy upgrades and, and do these different things or, hey, you're buying a game pass. so We really need you to be playing the game a lot so that you don't churn. Mm-hmm. Does, does it feel like it's pushing it a little bit more in like a business slash like commercial direction? Whereas you, I know earlier in the conversation you were mentioning up, you know, mentioning just like. How many of the original game creators were these really like artistic visionary people? Is that is is that kind of changing, or is there still a space for the the vision and like the art of this is how I want the gameplay to go to to fit into that model?
0: I think they definitely do exist. Um, there are lots of teams out there who are independent developers doing it because of their love of the craft and, and trying to create a specific experience. Um, I know indie developers find it very challenging though because a lot of the the environment is. Changing so that is encouraging these type of non-creative decisions about how do we just make an experience that so people will keep playing for a long time, and so I, I can see in the industry that's very challenging for developers and designers to, to work in. As a researcher, I, I see currently we we support both of the, these teams and these audiences, both those teams who are creating free-to-play games and trying to uh, optimize their monetization and have those type of retention questions that definitely exists and also is often where a lot of the, the money to do these types of big research studies is. But that doesn't mean that we aren't also helping and can't also help those smaller indie developers, those people who they don't have a huge budget, but they get a huge amount of value from a simple usability test or just seeing people play their game and that kind of quality of feedback. And a thing I'm really interested in, in the future in my own career It's working out how can we support those indie teams, those ones who don't have that money to to run those big studies, but how do we give them some of the tools and things that they can do to uh, take advantage of games user research best practice? Mm
2: -hmm. I I feel like we got to ask, what are some of your favorite games?
0: Well, some of my favorite (laughs) games? Um, One of my favorite games is Spelunky. I don't know if either of you are, are familiar with it. It's a... It's an indie game. I've started playing the sequel recently. You are someone who is a cave. You're going to a cave, and you're looking for a treasure in the cave, and it's a 2D platformer. Um, and it's extremely difficult. You die in the first five <laughs> seconds, but you learn something. And the next time you die in the, in, after six seconds, and you learn something more, and the next time you're in your next run, you'll last 10 seconds. And I really like that loop of every time I die, it's because I made a silly mistake. I, I learned why I made that silly mistake and I'm not going to do it next time. And that you see your own individual growth, uh, which mm. is really nice, but it's also very challenging. Mm. So I, I love that.
1: How do you play it? What do you play it on?
0: Oh, um, yes, I play it on the Switch. And in general, mm-hmm. I love the Switch currently. Um, it's because you can pick it up and put it down and you don't need to hog the TV and... Um, it does instantly resume from where you were. It allows me to fit in little five minute bits of gaming, whereas on a proper console, you have to sit down for an hour. Perhaps you <laughs> won't have that type of free time in your life. So I really love the Switch because it does fit with my life and, and just picking up and putting it down. Mm-hmm. Are, are either of you playing anything currently?
2: I, uh, I've i had periods in my life where I played tons of games, <laughs> uh, but I've been on a bit of a hiatus uh, as I've uh, gotten older and started a family and everything. But um, Growing up, my brother and I would play all sorts of different games, um, which was which was a lot of
0: fun. You should give the Switch a go. It does uh, work for parents, because you can just put it down when when necessary. Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah, my, my wife and I were talking about that, getting one and trying to go yeah. through Zelda together or something, because we nice. both like that game. So, yeah.
0: Yeah,
1: that's yeah, great. Zelda is my husband's favorite, for sure, Breath of the Wild. And then um, we've got our, our eight-year-old is starting. T- What's the one everyone's playing with the animals and they barter and buy things? Animal Crossing? So, yes, that one. That's been popular. Um, and then the little one does like Osmo, which is kind of in that like learning educational game, oh, a little nice. bit adjacent to what we've been talking about. But I imagine, you know, trying to uh, follow some of the same tenants, keeping it engaging.
0: Yeah. I think that's a really interesting space as well. Not one I, I know a huge amount about, but combining, are we making a fun experience with, are we achieving our learning objectives? Again, mm-hmm. interesting research questions for us to tackle. Mm-hmm. <laughs>
1: Steve, thanks thanks so much for joining us. Great to have you on.
0: No, thank you for having me. It's been a lovely chat. Yes, yeah, it was a ton of fun. Thank you.
2: Thank you.